Welcome to the Gun Plot Podcast from RTE's Documentary on One. This is the third of four extra episodes. This tape is from the second arms trial and is quite remarkable and will be of particular interest to legal scholars. This is a recording of what's called legal argument. That's a discussion between the judge and the various counsel on matters of law. It takes place in the absence of the jury and is not reported on by the press. This tape was recorded on the afternoon of October the 20th, 1970, and before we hear it, historian Michael Heaney explains what's going on. What happened was that the judge basically shocked the defence by announcing that he felt the defence had made no case that the arms which were coming in might be for the use of the defence forces. They had to be for the use of the defence forces for the importation to be legal. And the judge suddenly announced that he was considering withdrawing from the jury any consideration that the arms might have been for the use of the defence forces. This would have utterly undercut the defence argument that the importation was legal. And... Tom Finlay immediately rose to his feet and said, I'm not sure I I heard your your lordship correctly, but if you're suggesting that the jury would not be allowed to consider this issue, this would be entirely wrong. And there followed then a 40-minute discussion in which Neil McCarthy for Charles Hawhey weighed in, as did the state prosecution barrister, and they tossed it around as to whether a case had been made that the arms might possibly be for the use of the defence forces. It was a pivotal issue. Ultimately, the judge drew back. Finlay and McCarthy won their point in this discussion and as a result, the judge made no direction that the arms could not be for the use of the defence forces. He left it to the jury and the jury ultimately several days later, decided that the arms could be and were for the use of the defence forces. So this was a pivotal issue in the trial. This was a pivotal moment. And this discussion is the moment when counsel for the defence pulled the judge back from making a direction that would have absolutely undercut the defence of the four accused. I'm required at this stage to make a ruling on the submission of law made by Mr. Walsh on behalf of the Attorney General. As I understand that submission, it is that if it be the case, as he submits it is here, that there was no written license granted to any of the accused under Section 17 of the Firearms Act 1925, if any accused uh, thereupon proceeded to agree to import arms and ammunition, that it is immaterial whether they knew that there would or would not be an authority given by the Minister for Defence for the import of the arms and ammunition uh, for the use of the armed forces. Uh, He submits that the question of lack of knowledge is relevant only to the commodity Uh, that all that is required to be proved is that there was no license and that what was sought to be imported uh, was a consignment of arms and ammunition 
and that it is immaterial from there on whether the accused knew anything about uh, an authority from the Minister for Defence under Section 17 of the Firearms Act. And in support of that submission, he relies on the decision of the House of Lords in Churchill's case. Now, counsel for the accused submit that that submission is not correct and they equally rely on the decision in Churchill's case. So it's necessary to consider what Churchill's case did decide and what facts did Churchill's case bear on. And for that purpose, I turn to the report that is to be found in the authorised reports, 1967, two appeal cases, page 224. I turn to that report because it's the fullest and it gives the arguments of counsel. It appears in the headnote that the appellant was employed as a bookkeeper by a company which, with an associated company, sold a quantity of diesel oil for road transport purposes. Uh, when the oil was sold in that way, it attracted a duty of two and ninepence a gallon. But if the same oil was used for stationary plant or heating purposes, uh, it had a red dye added to it and it attracted only a duty of tuppence a gallon. And it appears the two types of oil were blended and sold. And the appellant was charged with conspiring firstly to defraud the, uh, the revenue, and secondly, he was charged with uh, conspiring to commit a breach of the section of the Customs and Excise Act, which said that uh, No heavy oils, on the delivery of which for home use rebate has been allowed, shall be used as fuel for a vehicle to which this section applies, unless there has been paid to the commissioners, in accordance with regulations made for the purposes of this subsection, an amount equal to the rebate on like oils at the rate for the time being in force. Now, on the first count, the appellant was acquitted. That meant the jury held that he had no intention to defraud. <coughs> Consequently, that also held that he had no intention, that he had no knowledge that the blended fuels would be sold uh, without the rebate being paid. And uh, it's in the context of those facts that the appeal arose. Because the trial judge charged the jury in terms which suggested that it was immaterial whether the appellant knew that the rebate had been paid or had not been paid. And the certificate was granted for appeal to the Supreme Court, uh, to the uh, House of Lords, to decide whether uh, mens rea was an ingredient in conspiracy to commit the absolute offence charged in count two. And if so, what knowledge of the facts and or law on the part of the defendant must be established to prove the charge? It appears, therefore, that what the appellant had done was to be a party to the sale of blended oil on which the proper rate of duty had not been paid. And on the direction given by the trial judge, he was found guilty, uh, it being 
brought to the notice of the jury by the terms of the charge, that it was immaterial whether he knew the duty had been, char had been paid or not. He wasn't charged with an offence which uh, claimed that he had sold uh, the wrong fuel, but merely fuel on which duty had not been paid. And it was argued for the Crown that this uh, charge or direction was correct, that mens rea was not an essential ingredient, and that it was immaterial whether he knew that the duty had not been paid. Now, it seems to me that's essentially the same submission as is being made by Mr. Walsh. Mr. Walsh admits that it is immaterial whether the accused knew that the authority would be got or not. In Churchill's case, it was submitted that it was immaterial whether the accused knew that the duty would be paid or not. And counsel for the uh, appellant submitted that this was unsound in law and in logic, that it would uh, have uh, side effects which would be grossly uh, unfair. And he submitted, for example, that if the decision or if the direction of the trial judge was correct, he said, then anyone who drives his car into the forecourt of a garage for petrol, which he agrees to buy from the proprietor, could be held guilty of conspiracy along with him. Uh, that submission is incorrect uh, for this reason, that uh, what the person who commit, if any offence there, would not be conspiracy, but aiding and abetting. But would such person be guilty of aiding and abetting? Uh, in my view, the House of Lords held no. And they equated the law on aiding and abetting to the law on conspiracy. And Vicon Dillon, the law, uh, giving the judgment with which the other members of the court agreed, said at page 233, the use of gas oil in road vehicles only contravenes section 200, subsection 2, if a rebate has been allowed on it and the amount of the rebate has not been refunded. An agreement to use in road vehicles gas oil on which a rebate has been allowed is not therefore per se an agreement to do an unlawful act. But it will be an agreement to do an unlawful act if the object of the agreement is so to use gas oil in respect of which no repayment has been made. If, may, if I may ad adapt uh, that passage to the facts of the present case, uh, I would say this, that if the agreement entered to in this case was to import guns without a license, that is not per se prohibited. It is prohibited only if it is shown that there is not an authority from the Minister for Defence to import the arms and ammunition for the use of the armed forces or the guards. And later on in the judgment, Viscount uh, Dillon says, I would say that mens rea is only an essential ingredient in conspiracy, insofar as there must be an intention to be a party to an agreement to do an unlawful act, that knowledge of the law on the part of the accused is immaterial, and that knowledge of the facts is only material, insofar as such knowledge throws a light on what was agreed. Consequently, 
the first thing the jury have to find out is what was agreed. And they, in order that the prosecution should succeed, it must be established that what was agreed had as its object uh, something that was unlawful. Now, the importation of arms and ammunition per se is not unlawful. It must be shown, therefore, that the object was to do something more, to do something that was unlawful, and specifically in this case, uh, to import contrary to Section 17. So it seems to me that the ruling I gave earlier is the correct one. What the prosecution has to do is to show that an agreement was entered into, the object of which was to import arms and ammunition, A, without the written license provided for by Section 17, and B, without the authority of the Minister for Defence for such importation for the purposes of the armed forces. There's just one further matter I should add. First of all, in regard to Mr. McCarthy's submission, uh, I'm not in a position to deal with that at this stage. Any special defence that will arise, I shall deal with uh, when I come to address the jury. At the moment, I don't see how this defence arises, so I don't propose to rule on it. But I accept to say this, that if an agreement was entered into, the object of which was the unlawful one that I have set out, then the completed offence has been committed. And uh, one judged the situation as of the time of the agreement. Now, there's just one further matter that I would like to add, and it's this, as at present advised, it does not seem to me on any version of the evidence that such agreement as has been shown in evidence to have been given by the Minister for Defence amounted or could amount to an agreement uh, to an, author, an authority uh, to import arms for the use of the armed forces. <coughs> Does anybody wish to say anything further at this stage? I was going to respect the Lord to the last point. Which would be... Yes, I'd hear you on that, Mr. Finley. Yes, ma'am. I don't, at the moment, with great respect, Lord, quite understand on what basis your Lordship puts it. The provisions of section, subsection 8 of section 17. Is that the end? <coughs> Read that the sections shall not imply to the importation to such that are to any firearms, etc., which is so imported under the authority of the Minister for Defence for the use of the Defence Forces of Sassadaran. The word authority, my lord, probably needs no particular definition, but it may be of some assistance to your lordship that it has been <coughs> defined. Well, perhaps you tell me what you submit. It does mean, Mr. Finlay, we might not need authority. Well, what I respectfully submit is this, my lord, that if the evidence is that the object or agreement, as your lordship puts it, was to import arms, the Minister for Defence agreeing to that importation, and they being to be held under the control of the army and for the use of the defence forces, whether 
what their ultimate uh, use by the defence forces being would be quite irrelevant in regard to this. But that is a complete defence, Lord, if that is the object. Now, in order to consider whether that is the object of the agreement, the jury must consider whether the parties entering into the agreement at the time they made it and at the relevant and material times uh, believed that the Minister for Defence was authorising this importation. For the use of the armed services. For the use of the armed services. forces. For the, uh, for the use of the defence forces. And that being so, my lord, it, it, I may be not taking up your lordship's last remark correctly, but it would, it would appear to be inconsistent with what your lordship has said. Your Lordship, as I understood it, said that as at present advised, there does not seem to be such agreement on the part of the Minister as, as could amount to an authority. authority as could amount to an authority. I, I said agreement, authority. Sorry, I should have it. Uh, that being so, my Lord, I don't know whether Your Lordship suggests that the, <coughs> the, the uh, bringing in of arms here to be held under the control of the Defence Forces, uh, to be held by them as surplus arms, and if and when a decision was so made to be distributed uh, in contingencies to persons outside the defence forces is not a use for the defence forces. But in my respect for submission, if that were the point on which your Lordship is, 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 is making a tentative suggestion to that effect, it would be at violent variance with the ordinary word, the use of the word use, or the ordinary meaning of the word use, my Lord. Use in this context would go back to the question, this is a penal statute, and use must be construed uh, in favour of any person in respect of whom penalty must be imposed. Now, use in its ordinary dictionary meaning, which coincides, the first canon of construction is that your lordship should try to give to the word its ordinary meaning. There's nothing in the sec it's not a term of art, and there's nothing in the provisions of the section itself which would in any way... Uh, there's nothing in the in the act itself which in any way profits to define use, my lord. Nor is there any uh, inherent uh, situation in this action. Uh, in the Why action. do you say there's nothing in the act to define the use of the word? There's, there, the word use is not defined in the act, my lord. Yes. But isn't it used in certain contexts throughout the act? Well, it, it is more or less, but not in any different context from its ordinary meaning. It's not given to a, it's not given any specialised meaning in the Act, my lord. Now, the ordinary meaning of the word use, in my respectful submission, is apply to any purpose. And that is uh, not only a, a meaning of it which finds authority in, in, in a dictionary definition of it, but it also finds authority, my lord, in a number of cases which may be of some assistance to your lordship on this aspect. The first of them is a case of the British Motor Syndicate Limited versus Taylor and Sons, reported at 1900, First Chancery, <coughs> at page 577, my lord. It's a patent case, my lord. 
And very shortly, the position in the case is set out in the immediately below the head note on page 577. Plaintiffs were the registered proprietors of a patent for apparatus for starting gas motor engines, having acquired the patent by assignment and so on. The plaintiffs brought this action against the defendants for infringement of the patent by an order made by consent, an injunction and delivery up of the infringing article in order and so on. It appeared from the evidence adduced upon the inquiry that the defendants had bought in England 27 starters which were infringement of the patent. They sold seven of them and used another in England. It was not disputed that they were liable in respect of those eight starters. The remaining 19 were sent abroad by the defendants to their branch house in Paris where they were sold to various foreign firms. The plaintiffs have been unable to recover any damage from the persons who sold the infringing article to the defendants. The plaintiffs claim to be entitled to £10 for each of the 27 starters on the ground that that was the lowest royalty they had accepted from any wrongful user, evidence and so on. Now, the matter with which your Royal Lord concerned, Lord, is dealt with at page 583. And I think it's probably appropriate, my Lord, start at the commencement. In the report of the same case, in two reports of patent cases, page 31, the words attributed to him are that it would be a user which would be an infringement of the painter, of the patent. And I think that must have been the meaning, <coughs> and that the decision was meant to extend to cases of export for sale, where no part of the transaction of sale took place in the United Kingdom. The first meaning assigned to the word use in Johnson's dictionary is to employ to any purpose. It is therefore a word of wide signification. It seems to me that the terms use and make use of are intended to have a wider application than exercise and put in practice. And without saying that no limit is to be placed on the two former expressions in the patent, I think on the best consideration that I can give, they are not confined to the use of a patented article for the purpose for which it was patented. In my opinion, the transport within the United Kingdom of the articles made according to the plaintiff's patent, under circumstances which occurred in this case, was indirectly, at least, making use of those articles within the meaning of the patently, patent and consequently is an infringement. Now, the correctness of that view with what, regard... What was the extent of the use in that case? They, they were simply transported, no. The, the use, the relevant use, was used within the jurisdiction in England. And they were simply transported. The, the particular 19 that are dealt with. They were simply transported within England on their way to a use outside the jurisdiction in England. That case, my lord, was considered and the particular part of it with which I submitted to your lordship was confirmed in a much later case of Shell Max and BP Limited versus Clayton and another, reported in 1955, Third All England Reports, at page 102.
This was a racing case, my lord. And the head notes reads, rates deracing, freight transport had a discipline, insulation for unshipping and storing oil. Ratepayer selling agent for oil companies. Use of the head of Dutterman for dock purposes. Occupation and use of head of Dutterman as part of a dock undertaking. Oil intended for the use of the ratepayer. Rating and valuation apportionment act. And then the head, the, the uh, note of the decision, Lord, or the note of the facts reads, the ratepayer was the occupier of a head of Dutterman comprising land <coughs> along the banks of the Humber, held under lease in the British Transport Commission, which was the dock authority. Ratepayer was the sole selling agent of the United Kingdom of three oil-producing companies. Substantially, the whole of the ratepayer's business consisted of the sale and distribution of that oil, and it was remunerated for its services by three oil companies on a commission basis. Stood in the head of Dittimans, which was some 51 and a half acres in area, offices, stores, garages, filling sheds, pump houses, a boiler house, tanks, and ancillary buildings. All of which directions, save one, were occupied by the ratepayer. In addition, the ratepayer owned and occupied a large berth erected on part of the foreshore, in part leased in the Board of Trade and in part under Licensed Division Transport Commission and their predecessors. The boat was some 1,000 feet from the head of Dittimant and was connected with the pump houses and tanks in the head of Dittimant by means of pipelines that were owned, occupied and used exclusively by the ratepayer. The ratepayer used the land as a terminal depot in its business of importing, distributing and marketing oil. Incoming tankers unshipped at the, which belonged to the British Transport Commission was <coughs> constituted a dock within the Rating and Valuation Act. The unshipping was effected by pumping the oil to the tankers through a system of pipes running along the jetties and leading to the storage tanks. And the total tankage capacity was 211,781 tons. And the tanks habitually contained between 100,000 and 150,000 tons of oil, which was sufficient to cover one month's deliveries. The average of season deliveries of oil approximately balanced, and the stocks held at the head of Dittman was in the nature of a reserve. The ratepayer distributed supplies of oil by land and water transport to its own depots and to various categories of customers, consumed a relatively insignificant quantity in its own operations. It was contended for the ratepayer, I'm sorry, I'm skipping some of the uh, facts, my lord. It was contended for the ratepayer that the head of Dittman was a freight transport head of Dittman within section five of the Rating and Valuation Apportionment Act 1928 as being a head of Dittman used partly for dock purposes and so used as part of a dock undertaking and whereof a substantial proportion of the volume of business was concerned with shipping and unshipping merchandise not belonging to or intended for the use of the ratepayer. It was held. The head additament was not a freight transport head additament as although the first essential of the definition was satisfied, the second and third essentials were not satisfied. Although the head additament was used in part for dock purposes within the meaning of the Act of 1928, and the part so used was not in whole use primarily for warehousing oil, not in the course of being transported, and thus was not accepted from the branch of the definition of freight transport head additiments by virtue of section 66, subsection 3 of the Act of 1928. No part of the head additiment was used as part of a dock undertaking, neither as part of the dock undertaking of the British Transport Commission, since the rate pair did not provide facilities for unshipping oil for anyone uh, wishing to import it, but only for its own business. And then nor as part of a dock undertaking of the ratepayer since the barge berth was occupied in connection with the ratepayer's entire undertaking at the head of Dittimant rather than the converse. Further, the right to use the pipelines running along the Commission's jetties did not constitute a dock undertaking, and according to the requirements of the definition of dock undertaking. The oil was, this is the important one, the oil was intended for the use of the ratepayer within the meaning of section 5.1c of the Act of 1928 since the ratepayer's business consisted in the sale and distribution of oil. Now, 
the, again, the meaning of the word use, my Lord, was dealt with at page 117 of this report. It's towards the conclusion of the judgment, my Lord, and a lot of the other matters are, are not... Uh, <coughs> the judgment of Master of the Rolls, Sir Raymond Eversham. The word use, in its natural meaning, is a word of wide import. In British Motor Syndicate Limited versus Taylor and Son Limited, Sterling pointed out that the first meaning assigned to the word use in Johnson's dictionary is to employ to any purpose. It is therefore a word of wide signification. In this wide sense. It is, we think, apt to cover the commodity in which a merch merchant trades, trades, be he a petroleum merchant, a timber merchant, or other merchant. The commodity is employed in the merchant's business. It is used to supply his customers. We agree on this aspect of the case with the observations of Lord Keith at the end of his judgment of the Aberdeen case. <coughs> now these, as far as I'm aware, my lord, are the only two <coughs> decisions that are on the word use. But the matter goes, uh, as a matter of ordinary construction, quite apart from the obligation which my respectful submission would be on your lordship to uh, construe this word in its wide and liberal context, as far as uh, the construction of a penal statute in a criminal case is concerned. It goes further on the ordinary common sense of the matter, my lord. If any form of equipment is considered necessary to have and to keep or to hold by the defense forces against any contingency. To take the example that I mentioned to your lordship and this matter was mooted at an earlier stage, to take the situation where the defense forces found themselves as we are now told with refugee camps at the commencement of this period in 1969. Any piece of equipment which they obtain and bring into their stores or bring under their control against any contingency is something which they are using in that sense. And to do otherwise, my lord, would be to do violence to the whole concept of the section. One hopes, for example, that a very considerable amount of warlike stores that have been imported into this country by the defense forces in the last 20 or 30 years will never, in one sense of the word, be put to use in the sense that a considerable, presumably, amount of ammunition and so on is being brought in the, for the defense forces in recent years, which it is everyone's hope will never be set off. But to say that because it is brought in here, put into a magazine, or put under any other form of control or storage against a contingency in the future that is something which is not for the use of the defense forces, who would be, in my respect for submission, straining words entirely and straining them in the wrong direction, what's more, because it would be straining them against the accused uh, in a criminal case. Now, that, in my respect for submission, Lord, is the position, but there is one sub uh, sub-argument, if you like to put it that way, that I would respectfully submit to your Lordship. My respectful submission is, my Lord, that your Lordship's function in regard to this would be to define to the jury the meaning of the section insofar 
There's any words in the section uh, necessitate construction that your lordship could and should appropriately define to the jury what the meaning of the word use is. That that definition, in my respectful submission, should be that employ to any purpose or any equivalent phrase, I take it as being the most convenient one and one enshrined by authority. But I would respectfully submit that having defined to the jury what the meaning of the word use is in that fashion, it is peculiarly a matter for the jury as to whether any particular employment of goods was or was not a use within the meaning of the section. And I equate the situation here, my lord, for example, to the well-known situation that has arisen in regard to prosecutions under Section 52 of the Road Traffic Act of 1961. There, as your lordship is aware, the judges in their trial, in their direction, uh, their charges to the jury, properly define to a jury what dangerous driving means. And because of the availability of an alternative uh, uh, type of conviction, usually also defined to a jury what careless driving means. But it's peculiarly dangerous driving in its ordinary meaning having been defined. It's peculiarly a matter for the jury to reach a conclusion of fact as to whether any particular driving which on the evidence they accept happened constitutes dangerous driving or not. And therefore, not only do I say, my lord, that any ruling such as your lordship indicates it as being, I know, a very tentative view that the uh, authority suggested in the evidence was not an authority uh, to import for the use, not only do I say that that would be wrong in the sense of putting an entirely incorrect and artificial meaning on the word use in the section. I would like to defend with that term, while I don't question anything you say about the word use, that the expression used is not to be used by the armed forces, but for the use of the defense. I know, Lord. but that, that's, why I'm, that's why I'm directing my attention to the word use. So any definition is not to be of the word use, but of the expression for the use of the defense forces. Well, except this, my Lord, that we know what for means. We know what the defense forces mean. Uh, if we are presented with any difficulty in the phrase, and I respectfully submit we're not, but if we are presented with any difficulty of the, in the phrase, it can only rest upon the word use. <coughs> now, I agree, my Lord, if there was some other combination of words in the phrase, uh, we might have to look at the phrase as, as, uh, as a separate or different matter. But here, in my respect for submission, Lord, we, what we're concerned with is for the use of the defence forces. And if your Lordship were to narrow that down by saying that goods imported, arms imported, to be brought under the control and kept under the control of the defence forces against a contingency distribution, is not something which is for the use of the defence forces, would be to give it to it an entirely artificial meaning. And as I say, secondly, I respectfully submit that having defined the ordinary meaning of the words in the section, what use means, that it is peculiarly a matter for the jury 
as a fact to find, having been properly instructed as to what the word means, whether on their view of the evidence, any particular importation was for the use of the defense forces or not. In the same way exactly as a jury having been properly instructed as to what the meaning of the word dangerous is, it's peculiarly a matter for them to conclude as to whether any particular driving was on a, a particular occasion dangerous or not, or whether it was careless and so on. And for those reasons, my Lord, if your Lordship were to make a ruling along the lines uh, which your Lordship indicated, in my respectful submission, your Lordship would be falling into error in two ways. Firstly, you'd be putting an artificial and unprovided restricted meaning on the word use in the section. And secondly, your Lordship would be usurping the function of the jury. Any other counsel for the defense wish to say anything? Yes, I'm not clear that on whether or not your Lordship's ruling is limited to the word, to the expression for the use of, or if it covers all I'm not making quality. any ruling, Mr. McCarthy. Oh, I beg your pardon, your Lordship's indication of view. Uh, in the case of my view, yes. I, I didn't say that I would direct the jury on any particular aspect of the case. I said, as a present advice, my view of the situation was as I stated. Yes. Well, it's perhaps inappropriate then, Lord, unless your Lordship is inhibiting counsel. No, I'm not. No, well, then, not in this respect, I'm no. not. And well, then I think perhaps it's... But you may address anything you wish to say at this stage. Well, I support Mr. Finlay's observations, yes. Lord. Uh, I had thought your Lordship might perhaps be adverting to some of the uh, occasions in which the word <coughs> use occurs in er earlier sections of the Act, where there's a distinction between use, carry, and possess. Uh, that, I think, would, if one were to say that the word use in section 17.8 must have the same meaning as the word use in section 4, for instance, which is um, the provision for the grant of a firearm certificate, or perhaps more particularly in section, three, section 2, subsection 3, which excludes from the application of section 2 which is the restriction on the possession, use, and carriage of firearms, excludes the possession, use, or carriage of a firearm or ammunition by a member of the defense forces. If the word use is to be given in, in section 17.8 is to be given the same meaning as, as in section 2, subsection 3b, uh, it would mean that the army, or the defense forces, when taking in arms, could not carry them or keep them in their possession. They could only presumably fire them. And that, I think, would, would make uh, an absurdity, obviously, if my logic is correct, of section 17.8. That use in that, or for the use of, must extend uh, to many different um, now, I was dealings thinking, with... I was thinking more of instances such as section 16, subsection 5. Yes. The consignment intended for the use of the defence force, but the, the, the phrase is the same. But it must be in the contemplation of the section, particularly one being given a liberal construction, it must be in the contemplation of the section that the defence forces, be it, be they the army or marine defence forces, or the FCA, will import arms which may never be put to martial use. 
if it is. And your Lordship will bear in mind that these arms were imported to be stored. There is no obligation on the jury to conclude in any way, and one would hope that in fact the circumstances were such if the jury act on this, that they would never have been given away, that they would have been retained by the army at all times. The fact that a potential other purpose was in mind it doesn't make it any different that than the case of where the army uh, by arms as surplus requirements with the hope they will never be put to any martial use. And uh, in fact never are become obsolete and disposed of. There must be many forms of military equipment that are bought, firearms that are bought, and which would never be used save in time of war or armed invasion. <coughs> One hopes they will never be put to military or martial use, but that doesn't mean they are not bought for the use of the defense forces. I think, I don't know if any confusion exists in regard to this, but I do place considerable reliance on the fact uh, that the hope of all would be uh, that these particular weapons would never have been put to the purpose of being handed over to civilians. That's the contingency for which provision was being made. But it was no different in my submission, essentially, than the ordinary importation of arms for protection of the state in time of armed invasion. If, as one might say, one could readily see a considerable distinction if the expression had been for use by in regard to the ultimate purpose here. But that's not the phrase, it's for the use of. It's for the government, through the Minister for Defence, to determine, within certain constitutional limitations, for what purposes the defence forces will be employed. <coughs> and if they could properly employ them, in, in just in keeping arms, maintaining arms, for a given contingency, which might never happen, then in my submission the importation is for the use of. I don't know if you know what you would like, I mean, views on the question of authority. How do you mean authority? On, on, on the word authority itself. As no, to I don't think so. I don't think so, unless I hear something to the contrary of... Uh, if you don't. Thank you. Express. <coughs> Any other counsel wish to say anything? Mr. Walsh? Again, to remind you, our old West Coast was I did an area juncture. I hope it was of some help to you, Lord. I did refer you to the to the, the meaning as set out in the Oxford English Dictionary. Yes. I don't know if you took. I don't know if there was any help, or would it be any help if I cited it now? Well, you didn't refer me to the meaning. You referred me to a meaning. Oh, a, I expect yes. there are a couple of score of meanings. Perhaps the best thing I could do if, if there's some help to me in front of me. No, no sorry, I'll take your word. I'll take your word. I'm not as strong as you are. Hey, Mr. Walker. Yes, I understand, gentlemen, the, the, uh, the problem which your, which your Lordship indicated was not 
so much a problem of interpretation, but a question of whether or not the evidence which had been given so far uh, warranted a defence along certain lines. In a sense, I agree there can't be much, much argument as to the meaning of subsection 8 of section 17. Two things have to coexist. First, there has to be an importation of arms for the use of the defense forces. And secondly, that importation has to take place under the authority of the Minister for Defense. Now, of course we can all agree that there are many circumstances in which arms could be brought in for the use of the defence forces and wouldn't actually be put to practical use. The army could bring in a consignment of, of firearms, take them into army custody, decide they weren't suitable, and perhaps resell them, otherwise dispose of them. But in order that there can be use, my lord, even within the terms of Mr. Finlay's definition, which I'm quite prepared to accept, there must also be the element of control. And arms can't be brought in for the use of the defence forces, unless they're under the control of the defence forces. They have to become army arms. And not even the Minister for Defence can authorize the importation of arms, which are not for the use of the defense forces. And the problem, as I apprehended, my lord, is a, is a problem, really, of, of evidence, because the evidence here is to the effect that if it had gone through a certain consignment of, of uh, ammunition would have arrived in Dublin docks in a, a certain date, it would have passed into the custody of a defendant who was, it so happened, a member of the defence forces, and a defendant who, as it happened, was not a member of the, of the defence forces. And as I, as I apprehend it, there will be, so far as the evidence is concerned, a, a, a grave difficulties of, for the defendants to point to evidence that would support the defence that we're dealing with an importation of arms which was for the use of the defence forces and which had the sanction of the Minister for Defence. So far as we're concerned, we don't, of course, raise any objection to speeches being made by counsel for the defence in an endeavour to, to persuade the jury to come to such a conclusion. But our submission will be to the effect that the, the, that the evidence just doesn't measure up to it. Uh, and I was under the impression that this was the problem that your Lordship was indicating. Well, the matter calls for no ruling from me at this stage. I shall make no ruling that would inhibit any counsel from making such admissions as he thinks proper on the evidence as to whether an authority was given for the importation of the arms and ammunition uh, for the use of the armed forces. Now, I don't think I need to give any other ruling at this stage. 
I would like to remind counsel of the ruling I did give earlier that the jury should not be addressed either on behalf of the prosecution or for the defence as to the consequences, personal, penal, political or otherwise, of a verdict either of guilty or not guilty. Mr McCarthy, will you complete your address this afternoon or not? I should hope to, but I, uh, of course I can't give... Oh, I don't intend to bind you in the no, case, I but uh, I would like to train the jury after four o'clock. Oh, no, my lord, I'm not going to... That because uh, they're working steadily every day and it would be unfair yeah. to them. Well, Apart from I... the fact that they might weary listening to you. Not of what you say, but from weariness. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a question of your convenience as well as the jury. I don't intend to... Go on beyond four. Go on beyond four. I shall have Legal argument from the second arms trial recorded just before closing submissions on October the 20th, 1970. The recording in the next episode is one of those closing submissions which was made by a man who at the time was a star of the law library. One barrister said of this next tape that all trainee barristers should be given a chance to listen to it to hear how to make an address to a jury. <laughs>